The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 17 Marriage of Daisy Mutlar and Murray Posh. The Dream of My Life Realized. Mr. Perkup takes Lupin into the office. March the 20th. Today being the day on which Daisy Mutlar and Mr. Murray Posh are to be married, Lupin has gone with a friend to spend the day at Gravesend. Lupin has been much cut up over the affair, although he declares that he is glad it is off. I wish he would not go to so many musicals, but one dare not say anything to him about it. At the present moment he irritates me by singing all over the house some nonsense about what's the matter with Gladstone, he's all right, what's the matter with Lupin, he's all right. I don't think either of them is. In the evening Gowing called, and the chief topic of conversation was Daisy's marriage to Murray Posh. I said I was glad the matter was at an end, as Daisy would only have made a fool of Lupin. Gowing, with his usual good taste, said, Oh, Master Lupin can make a fool of himself without any assistance. Carrie very properly resented this, and Gowing had sufficient sense to say he was sorry. March the 21st Today I shall conclude my diary, for it is one of the happiest days of my life. My great dream of the last few weeks, in fact, of many years, has been realised. This morning came a letter from Mr. Perkup asking me to take Lupin down to the office with me. I went to Lupin's room. Poor fellow, he seemed very pale, and said he had a bad headache. He had come back yesterday from Gravesend, where he spent part of the day in a small boat on the water having been mad enough to neglect to take his overcoat with him. I showed him Mr. Perkup's letter, and he got up as quickly as possible. I begged of him not to put on his fast-coloured clothes and ties, but to dress in something black or quiet-looking. Carrie was all of a tremble when she read the letter, and all she could keep on saying was, Oh, I do hope it will be all right. For myself, I could scarcely eat any breakfast. Lupin came down, dressed quietly, and looking a perfect gentleman, except that his face was rather yellow. Carrie, by way of encouragement, said, "'You do look nice, Lupin.' Lupin replied, "'Yes, it's a good make-up, isn't it? A regular, downright, respectable, funereal, first-class, city-firm, junior clerk.' He laughed rather ironically. In the hall I heard a great noise, and also Lupin shouting to Sarah to fetch down his old hat. I went into the passage and found Lupin in a fury, kicking and smashing a new tall hat. I said, Lupin, my boy, what are you doing? How wicked of you! Some poor fellow would be glad to have it. Lupin replied, I would not insult any poor fellow by giving it to him. When he had gone outside, I picked up the battered hat and saw inside Posh's patent. Poor Lupin, I can forgive him. It seemed hours before we reached the office. Mr. Perkup sent for Lupin, who was with him nearly an hour. He returned, as I thought, crestfallen in appearance. I said, Well, Lupin, how about Mr. Perkup? Lupin commenced his song, What's the matter with Perkup? He's all right. I felt instinctively my boy was engaged. I went to Mr. Perkup, but I could not speak. He said, Well, Mr. Pooter, what is it? I must have looked a fool, for all I could say was, Mr. Perkup, you're a good man. He looked at me for a moment and said, No, Mr. Pooter, you are the good man, 
and we'll see if we cannot get your son to follow such an excellent example. I said, Mr. Perkup, may I go home? I cannot work any more today. My good master shook my hand warmly as he nodded his head. It was as much as I could do to prevent myself from crying in the bus. In fact, I should have done so had my thoughts not been interrupted by Lupin, who was having a quarrel with a fat man in the bus, whom he accused of taking up too much room. In the evening, Carrie sent round for dear old friend Cummings and his wife, and also to Gowing. We all sat round the fire, and in a bottle of Jackson Frere, which Sarah fetched from the grocer's, drank Lupin's health. I lay awake for hours, thinking of the future. My boy in the same office as myself. We can go down together by the bus, come home together, and who knows, but in the course of time, he may take great interest in our little home. That he may help me to put a nail in here, or a nail in there, or help his dear mother to hang a picture. In the summer he may help us in our little garden with the flowers, and assist us to paint the stands and the pots. By the by, I must get in some more enamel paint. And this I thought over and over again, at a thousand happy thoughts beside. I heard the clock strike four, and soon after fell asleep, only to dream of three happy people, Lupin, dear Carrie, and myself. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 18 Trouble with a stylographic pen We go to a volunteer ball where I am let in for an expensive supper Grossly insulted by a cabman An odd invitation to South End April the 8th no events of any importance, except that Gowing strongly recommended a new patent stylographic pen, which cost me nine and sixpence, and which was simply nine and sixpence thrown in the mud. It has caused me constant annoyance and irritability of temper. The ink oozes out of the top, making a mess on my hands, and once at the office, when I was knocking the palm of my hand on the desk to jerk the ink down, Mr. Perkup, who had just entered, called out, "'Stop that knocking!' I suppose that is you, Mr. Pitt. The young monkey Pitt took a malicious glee in responding quite loudly. No, sir, I beg pardon. It is Mr. Pooter with his pen. It has been going on all the morning. To make matters worse, I saw Lupin laughing behind his desk. I thought it wiser to say nothing. I took the pen back to the shop and asked them if they would take it back as it did not act. I did not expect the full price returned, but was willing to take half. The man said he could not do that. Buying and selling were two different things. Lupin's conduct during the period he has been in Mr. Perkup's office has been most exemplary. My only fear is it is too good to last. April the 9th, Gowing called, bringing with him an invitation for Carrie and myself to a ball given by the East Acton Rifle Brigade which he thought would be a swell affair, as the member for East Acton, Sir William Grime, had promised his patronage. We accepted of his kindness, and he stayed to supper, on occasion I thought suitable for trying a bottle of Algera that Mr. James of Sutton had sent me as a present. Gowing sipped the wine, observing he had never tasted it before, and further remarked that his policy was to stick to more recognised brands. 
I told him it was a present from a dear friend, and one mustn't look a gift-horse in the mouth. Gowing facetiously replied, and he didn't like putting it in the mouth either. I thought the remarks were rude without being funny, but on tasting it myself came to the conclusion there was some justification for them. The sparkling algera is very like cider, only more sour. I suggested that perhaps the thunder had turned it a bit acid. He merely replied, Oh, I don't think so. We had a very pleasant game of cards, though I lost four shillings and Carry lost one, and Gowing said he had lost about sixpence. How he could have lost, considering that Carry and I were the only other players, remains a mystery. April the 14th, Sunday. Owing, I presume, to the unsettled weather, I awoke with a feeling that my skin was drawn over my face as tight as a drum. Walking round the garden with Mr. and Mrs. Treen, members of our congregation who had walked back with us, I was much annoyed to find a large newspaper full of bones on the gravel path, evidently thrown over by those young griffin boys next door, who, whenever we have friends, climb up the empty steps inside their conservatory, tap at the windows, making faces, whistling and imitating birds. April the 15th burnt my tongue most awfully with the Worcester sauce, through that stupid girl Sarah shaking the bottle violently before putting it on the table. April the 16th, the night of the East Acton Volunteer Ball. On my advice, Carrie put on the same dress that she looked so beautiful in at the mansion house. For it had occurred to me, being a military ball, that Mr. Perkup, who, I believe, is an officer in the Honorary Artillery Company, would in all probability be present. Lupin, in his usual incomprehensible language, remarked that he had heard it was a bounder's ball. I didn't ask him what he meant, though I didn't understand. Where he gets these expressions from, I don't know. He certainly doesn't learn them at home. The invitation was for half-past eight, so I concluded if we arrived an hour later we should be in good time without being unfashionable, as Mr. James says. It was very difficult to find, the cabman having to get down several times to inquire at different public houses where the drill-hall was. I wonder at people living in such out-of-the-way places. No one seemed to know it. However, after going up and down a good many badly lighted streets, we arrived at our destination. I had no idea it was so far from Holloway. I gave the cabman five shillings, who only grumbled, saying it was dirt cheap at half a sovereign, and was impertinent enough to advise me the next time I went to a ball to take a bus. Captain Welcut received us, saying we were rather late, but that it was better late than never. He seemed a very good-looking gentleman, though, as Carrie remarked, rather short for an officer. He begged to be excused for leaving us, as he was engaged for a dance, and hoped we should make ourselves at home. Carrie took my arm, and we walked around the rooms two or three times and watched the people dancing. I couldn't find a single person I knew, but attributed it to most of them being in uniform. As we were entering the supper-room, I received a slap on the shoulder, followed by a welcome shake of the hand. I said, Mr. Padge, I believe. He replied, That's right. I gave Carrie a chair, and, seated by her, was a lady who made herself at home with Carrie at once. There was a very liberal repast on the tables, plenty of champagne, claret, etc., 
and, in fact, everything seemed to be done regardless of expense. Mr. Padge is a man that, I admit, I have no particular liking for, but I felt so glad to come across someone I knew that I asked him to sit at our table, and I must say that for a short, fat man he looked well in uniform, although I think his tunic was rather baggy in the back. It was the only supper-room I have been in that was not overcrowded. In fact, we were the only people there, everybody being so busy dancing. I assisted Carrie and her newly formed acquaintance, who said her name was Lupkin, to some champagne. Also myself, and handed the bottle to Mr. Padge to do likewise, saying, You must look after yourself. He replied, That's right, and poured out half a tumbler and drank Carrie's health, coupled, as he said, with her worthy lord and master. We all had some splendid pigeon pie and ices to follow. The waiters were very attentive, and asked if we would like some more wine. I assisted Carrie and her friend, and Mr. Padge, also some people who had just come from the dancing-room, who were very civil. It occurred to me at the time that perhaps some of the gentlemen knew me in the city, as they were being so polite. I made myself useful, and assisted several ladies to ices, remembering an old saying that there is nothing lost by civility. The band struck up for the dance, and they all went into the ballroom. The ladies, Carrie and Mrs. Lupkin, were anxious to see the dancing, and, as I had not quite finished my supper, Mr. Padge offered his arms to them, and escorted them to the ballroom, telling me to follow. I said to Mr. Padge, it is quite a West End affair, to which remark Mr. Padge replied, that's right. When I had quite finished my supper, and was leaving, the waiter, who had been attending on us, arrested my attention by tapping me on the shoulder. I thought it unusual for a waiter at a private ball to expect a tip, but nevertheless gave a shilling, as he had been very attentive. He smilingly replied, I beg your pardon, sir, this is no good, alluding to the shilling. Your party's had four suppers at five shillings a head, five ices at one shilling, three bottles of champagne at eleven and sixpence, a glass of claret, and a sixpenny cigar for the stout gentleman. In all, three pounds, naught shillings, and sixpence. I didn't think I was ever so surprised in my life, and had only sufficient breath to inform him that I had received a private invitation, to which he answered that he was perfectly well aware of that, but that the invitation didn't include eatables and drinkables. A gentleman who was standing at the bar corroborated the waiter's statement, and assured me it was quite correct. The waiter said he was extremely sorry if I had been under any misapprehension, but it was not his fault. Of course, there was nothing to be done but to pay, so after turning out my pockets, I just managed to scrape up sufficient, all but nine shillings. But the manager, on my giving my card to him, said, that's all right. I don't think I ever felt more humiliated in my life, and I determined to keep this misfortune from Carrie, or it would entirely destroy the pleasant evening she was enjoying. I felt there was no more enjoyment for me that evening, and, it being late, I sought Carrie and Mrs. Lupkin. Carrie said she was quite ready to go, and Mrs. Lupkin, as we were wishing her good-night, asked Carrie and myself if we ever paid a visit to Southend. On my replying that I hadn't been there for many years, she very kindly said, Well, why don't you come down and stay at our place? As her invitation was so pressing, and, observing that Carrie wished to go, we promised we would visit her the next Saturday week, and stay till Monday. 
Mrs. Lupkin said she would write to us tomorrow, giving us the address and particulars of trains, etc. When we got outside the drill hall, it was raining so hard that the roads resembled canals, and I need hardly say we had great difficulty in getting a cabman to take us to Holloway. After waiting for a bit, a man said he would drive us anyhow as far as the Angel at Islington, and we could easily get another cab from there. It was a tedious journey. The rain was beating against the windows and trickling down the inside of the cab. When we arrived at the Angel, the horse seemed tired out. Carrie got out and ran into a doorway, and when I came to pay, to my absolute horror, I remembered I had no money, nor had Carrie. I explained to the cabman how we were situated. Never in my life have I ever been so insulted. The cabman, who was a rough bully, and, to my thinking, not sober, called me every name he could lay his tongue to, and positively seized me by the beard, which he pulled till the tears came into my eyes. I took the number of a policeman, who witnessed the assault, for not taking the man in charge. The policeman said he couldn't interfere, that he had seen no assault, and that people should not ride in cabs without money. We had to walk home in the pouring rain, nearly two miles, and when I got in I put down the conversation I had had with the cabman, word for word, as I intend writing to the telegraph, for the purpose of proposing that cabs should be driven only by men under government control, to prevent civilians being subjected to the disgraceful insult and outrage I had had to endure. April the 17th, no water in our cistern again, sent for Putley, who said he would soon remedy that, the cistern being zinc. April the 18th, water all right again in the cistern, Mrs. James of Sutton called in the afternoon, she and Carrie draped the mantelpiece in the drawing-room, and put little toy spiders, frogs and beetles all over it, as Mrs. James says it's quite the fashion. It was Mrs. James' suggestion, and of course Carrie always does what Mrs. James suggests. For my part, I preferred the mantelpiece as it was, but there I am a plain man, and don't pretend to be in the fashion. April the 19th, our next-door neighbour, Mr. Griffin, called, and in a rather offensive tone accused me, or someone, of boring a hole in his cistern and letting out his water to supply our cistern, which adjoined his. He said he should have to have his repaired, and send us in the bill. April the 20th, Cummings called, hobbling in with a stick, saying he had been on his back for a week. It appears he was trying to shut his bedroom door, which is situated just at the top of the staircase, and, unknown to him, a piece of cork the dog had been playing with had got between the door and prevented it shutting. And, in pulling the door hard, to give it an extra slam, the handle came off in his hands and he fell backwards downstairs. On hearing this, Lupin suddenly jumped up from the couch and rushed out of the room sideways. Cummings looked very indignant, and remarked it was very poor fun, a man nearly breaking his back. And though I had my suspicions that Lupin was laughing, I assured Cummings that he had only run out to open the door to a friend he expected. Cummings said this was the second time he had been laid up, and we had never sent to inquire. I said I knew nothing about it. Cummings said it was mentioned in the bicycle news. April the 22nd I have of late frequently noticed Carrie rubbing her nails a good deal with an instrument, and on asking her what she was doing, she replied, Oh, I'm going in for manicuring. It's all the fashion now. I said, I suppose Mrs. James introduced that into your head? 
Carrie laughingly replied, Yes, but everyone does it now. I wish Mrs. James wouldn't come to the house. Whenever she does, she always introduces some new-fangled rubbish into Carrie's head. One of these days, I feel sure, I shall tell her she's not welcome. I'm sure it was Mrs. James who put Carrie up to writing on dark, slate-coloured paper with white ink. Nonsense! April the 23rd. Received a letter from Mrs. Lupkin of South End, telling us the train to come by on Saturday, and hoping we'll keep our promise to stay with her. The letter concluded, you must come and stay at our house. We shall charge you half what you will have to pay at the Royal, and the view is every bit as good. Looking at the address at the top of the notepaper, I found it was Lupkin's Family and Commercial Hotel. I wrote a note, saying we were compelled to decline her kind invitation. Carrie thought this very satirical and to the point. By the by, I will never choose another cloth pattern at night. I ordered a new suit of dittos for the garden at Edwards, and chose the pattern by gaslight, and they seemed to be a quiet pepper-and-salt mixture with white stripes down. They came home this morning, and, to my horror, I found it was quite a flash-looking suit. There was a lot of green with bright yellow-coloured stripes. I tried on the coat, and was annoyed to find Carrie giggling. She said, "'What mixture did you say you asked for?' I said, "'A quiet pepper and salt.' Carrie said, "'Well, it looks more like mustard, if you want to know the truth.'" End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 19 Meet Teddy Finsworth, an old schoolfellow. We have a pleasant and quiet dinner at his uncle's, marred only by a few awkward mistakes on my part respecting Mr. Finsworth's pictures. A discussion on dreams. April the 27th. Kept a little later than usual at the office, and as I was hurrying along, a man stopped me, saying, Hello, that's a face I know. I replied politely, very likely, lots of people know me, although I may not know them. He replied, but you know me, Teddy Finsworth. So it was. He was at the same school with me. I had not seen him for years and years. No wonder I did not know him. At school he was at least a head taller than I was. Now I am at least a head taller than he is, and he has a thick beard, almost grey. He insisted on my having a glass of wine, a thing I never do, and told me he lived at Middlesbrough, where he was deputy town clerk, a position which was as high as the town clerk of London, in fact higher. He added that he was staying for a few days in London with his uncle, Mr. Edgar Paul Finsworth, of Finsworth and Pultwell. He said he was sure his uncle would be only too pleased to see me, and he had a nice house, Watney Lodge only a few minutes' walk from Muswell Hill Station. I gave him our address, and we parted. In the evening, to my surprise, he called with a very nice letter from Mr. Finsworth, saying if we, including Carrie, would dine with them to-morrow, Sunday, at two o'clock, he would be delighted. Carrie did not like to go, but Teddy Finsworth pressed us so much we consented. Carrie sent Sarah round to the butcher's, and countermanded our half-leg of mutton, which we had ordered for to-morrow. April the 28th, Sunday, we found Watney Lodge 
farther off than we anticipated, and only arrived as the clock struck two, both feeling hot and uncomfortable. To make matters worse, a large collie-dog pounced forward to receive us. He barked loudly and jumped up at Carrie, covering her light skirt, which she was wearing for the first time, with mud. Teddy Finsworth came out and drove the dog off and apologised. We were shown into the drawing-room, which was beautifully decorated. It was full of knick-knacks and some plates hung up on the wall. There were several little wooden milk-stools with paintings on them, also a white wooden banjo, painted by one of Mr. Paul Finsworth's nieces, a cousin of Teddy's. Mr. Paul Finsworth seemed a quiet and distinguished-looking elderly gentleman, and was most gallant to carry. There were a great many water-colours hanging on the walls, mostly different views of India, which were very bright. Mr. Finsworth said they were painted by simps, and added that he was no judge of pictures himself, but had been informed on good authority that they were worth some hundreds of pounds, although he had only paid a few shillings apiece for them, frames included, at a sale in the neighbourhood. There was also a large picture in a very handsome frame, done in coloured crayons. It looked like a religious subject. I was very much struck with the lace collar, it looked so real, but I unfortunately made the remark that there was something about the expression of the face that was not quite pleasing. It looked pinched. Mr. Finsworth sorrowfully replied, Yes, the face was done after death, my wife's sister. I felt terribly awkward and bowed apologetically, and in a whisper said I hope I had not hurt his feelings. We both stood looking at the picture for a few minutes in silence, when Mr. Finsworth took out a handkerchief and said, She was sitting in our garden last summer, and blew his nose violently. He seemed quite affected, so I turned to look at something else, and stood in front of the portrait of a jolly-looking middle-aged gentleman with a red face and straw hat. I said to Mr. Finsworth, Who is this jovial-looking gentleman? Life doesn't seem to trouble him much. Mr. Finsworth said, No, it doesn't. He is dead too, my brother. I was absolutely horrified at my own awkwardness. Fortunately, at this moment, Carrie entered with Mrs. Finsworth, who had taken her upstairs to take off her bonnet and brush her skirt. Teddy said, Short is late, but at that moment the gentleman referred to arrived, and I was introduced to him by Teddy, who said, Do you know Mr. Short? I replied, smiling, that I had not had that pleasure, but I hoped it would not be long before I knew Mr. Short. He evidently did not see my little joke, although I repeated it twice with a little laugh. I suddenly remembered it was Sunday, and Mr. Short was perhaps very particular. In this I was mistaken, for he was not at all particular in several of his remarks after dinner. In fact, I was so ashamed of one of his observations, that I took the opportunity to say to Mrs. Finsworth, that I feared she found Mr. Short occasionally a little embarrassing. To my surprise, she said, Oh, he's privileged, you know. I did not know, as a matter of fact, and so I bowed apologetically. I failed to see why Mr. Short should be privileged. Another thing that annoyed me at dinner was that the collie dog which jumped up at Carrie was allowed to remain under the dining-room table. It kept growling and snapping at my boots every time I moved my foot. Feeling nervous, rather, I spoke to Mrs. Finsworth about the animal, and she remarked, It's only his play. She jumped up and let in a frightfully ugly-looking spaniel called Bibbs, which had been scratching at the door. This dog also seemed to take a fancy to my boots, 
and I discovered afterwards that it had licked off every bit of blacking from them. I was positively ashamed of being seen in them. Mrs. Finsworth, who, I must say, is not much of a Job's comforter, said, "'Oh, we're used to Bibbs doing that to our visitors.' Mr. Finsworth had up some fine port, although I question whether it is a good thing to take on the top of beer. It made me feel a little sleepy, which had the effect of inducing Mr. Short to become privileged to rather an alarming extent. It being cold even for April, there was a fire in the drawing-room. We sat around in easy chairs, and Teddy and I waxed rather eloquent over the old school days, which had the effect of sending all the others to sleep. I was delighted, as far as Mr. Short was concerned, that it did have that effect on him. We stayed till four, and the walk home was remarkable, only for the fact that several fools giggled at the unpolished state of my boots. Polished them myself when I got home. Went to church in the evening, and could scarcely keep awake. I will not take port on the top of beer again. April the twenty-ninth. I am getting quite accustomed to being snubbed by Lupin, and I do not mind being sat upon by Carrie, because I think she has a certain amount of right to do so but I do think it hard to be at once snubbed by wife, son, and both my guests. Gowing and Cummings had dropped in during the evening, and I suddenly remembered an extraordinary dream I had a few nights ago, and I thought I would tell them about it. I dreamt I saw some huge blocks of ice in a shop, with a bright glare behind them. I walked into the shop, and the heat was overpowering. I found the blocks of ice were on fire. The whole thing was so real, and yet so supernatural, I woke up in a cold perspiration. Lupin, in a most contemptuous manner, said, What utter rot! Before I could reply, Gowing said there was nothing so completely uninteresting as other people's dreams. I appealed to Cummings, but he said he was bound to agree with the others, and my dream was especially nonsensical. I said, It seemed so real to me. Gowing replied, Yes, to you, perhaps, but not to us, whereupon they all roared. Carrie, who had hitherto been quiet, said, He tells me his stupid dreams every morning, nearly. I replied, Very well, dear, I promise you I will never tell you, or anybody else, another dream of mine, the longest day I live. Lupin said, Hear, hear, and helped himself to another glass of beer. The subject was fortunately changed, and Cummings read a most interesting article on the superiority of the bicycle to the horse. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 20 Dinner at Franching's to meet Mr. Hardfur Huttle May the 10th received a letter from Mr. Franching of Peckham asking us to dine with him tonight at seven o'clock to meet Mr. Hardfur Huttle, a very clever writer for the American papers. Franching apologised for the short notice, but said he had at the last moment been disappointed of two of his guests, and regarded us as old friends who would not mind filling up the gap. Carrie rather demurred at the invitation, but I explained to her that Franching was very well off and influential, and we could not afford to offend him. And we are sure to get a good dinner and a good glass of champagne. Which never agrees with you, Carrie replied sharply. I regarded Carrie's observation as unsaid. Mr. Franching asked us to wire a reply. As he had said nothing about dress in the letter, I wired back, with pleasure, 
is it full dress? And, by leaving out our name, just got the message within the sixpence. Got back early to give time to dress, which we received a telegram instructing us to do. I wanted Carrie to meet me at Franching's house, but she would not do so, so I had to go home to fetch her. What a long journey it is from Holloway to Peckham! Why do people live such a long way off? Having to change buses, I allowed plenty of time, in fact too much, for we arrived at twenty minutes to seven, and Franching, so the servant said, had only just gone up to dress. However, he was down as the clock struck seven. He must have dressed very quickly. I must say it was quite a distinguished party, and although we did not know anybody personally, they all seemed to be quite swells. Franching had got a professional waiter, and evidently spared no expense. There were flowers on the table round some fairy lamps, and the effect, I must say, was exquisite. The wine was good, and there was plenty of champagne, concerning which Franching said he, himself, never wished to taste better. We were ten in number, and a menu card to each. One lady said she always preserved the menu, and got the guests to write their names on the back. We all of us followed her example except Mr. Huttle, who was, of course, the important guest. The dinner-party consisted of Mr. Franching, Mr. Hardfur Huttle, Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Hillbutter, Mrs. Field, Mr. and Mrs. Perdick, Mr. Pratt, Mr. R. Kent, and, last but not least, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Pooter. Franching said he was sorry he had no lady for me to take in to dinner. I replied that I preferred it, which I afterwards thought was a very uncomplimentary observation to make. I sat next to Mrs. Field at dinner. She seemed a well-informed lady, but was very deaf. It did not much matter, for Mr. Hardfur Huttle did all the talking. He is a marvellously intellectual man, and says things which, from other people, would seem quite alarming. How I wish I could remember even a quarter of his brilliant conversation! I made a few little reminding notes on the menu card. One observation struck me as being absolutely powerful though not to my way of thinking, of course. Mrs. Perdick happened to say, You are certainly unorthodox, Mr. Huttle. Mr. Huttle, with a peculiar expression, I can see it now, said in a slow, rich voice, Mrs. Perdick, orthodox is a grandiloquent word implying sticking in the mud. If Columbus and Stevenson had been orthodox, there would neither have been the discovery of America nor the steam engine. There was quite a silence. It appeared to me that such teaching was absolutely dangerous, and yet I felt—in fact, we must all have felt—there was no answer to the argument. A little later on, Mrs. Perdick, who is Franching's sister, and also acted as hostess, rose from the table, and Mr. Huttle said, Why, ladies, do you deprive us of your company so soon? Why not wait while we have our cigars? The effect was electrical. The ladies, including Carrie, were in no way inclined to be deprived of Mr. Huttle's fascinating society, and immediately resumed their seats amid much laughter and a little chaff. Mr. Huttle said, Well, that's a really good sign. You shall not be insulted by being called orthodox any longer. Mrs. Perdick, who seemed to be a bright and rather sharp woman, said, Mr. Huttle, we will meet you half-way, that is, till you get half-way through your cigar.' 
that, at all events, will be the happy medium. I shall never forget the effect of the words happy medium had upon him. He was brilliant and most daring in his interpretation of the words. He positively alarmed me. He said something like the following. Happy medium, indeed. Do you know happy medium are two words which mean miserable mediocrity? I say go first class or third, marry a duchess or her kitchen maid. The happy medium means respectability, and respectability means insipidness. Does it not, Mr. Pooter? I was so taken aback by being personally appealed to that I could only bow apologetically and say I feared I was not competent to offer an opinion. Carrie was about to say something, but she was interrupted, for which I was rather pleased, for she is not clever at argument, and one has to be extra clever to discuss a subject with a man like Mr. Huttle. He continued with an amazing eloquence that made his unwelcome opinions positively convincing. A happy medium is nothing more or less than a vulgar half-measure, a man who loves champagne, and, finding a pint too little, fears to face a whole bottle, and has recourse to an imperial pint, which will never build a Brooklyn Bridge or an Eiffel Tower. No, he is half-hearted, he is a half-measure, respectable, in fact, a happy medium, and will spend the rest of his days in suburban villa with a stucco-column portico resembling a four-post bedstead. We all laughed. That sort of thing, continued Mr. Huttle, belongs to a soft man with a soft beard, with a soft head, with a made tie that hooks on. This seemed rather personal, and twice I caught myself looking in the glass of the chiffonnier, for I had on a tie that hooked on, and why not? If these remarks were not personal, they were rather careless, and so were some of his subsequent observations, which must have made both Mr. Franching and his guests rather uncomfortable. I don't think Mr. Huttle meant to be personal, for he added, We don't know that class here in this country, but we do in America, and I've no use for them. Franching several times suggested that the wine should be passed round the table, which Mr. Huttle did not heed, but continued as if he were giving a lecture. What we want in America is your homes. We live on wheels. Your simple, quiet life and home, Mr. Franching, are charming. No display, no pretension. You make no difference in your dinner, I dare say, when you sit down by yourself, and when you invite us. You have your own personal attendant, no hired waiter to breathe on the back of your head. I saw Franching palpably wince at this. Mr. Huttle continued, Just a small dinner with a few good things such as you have this evening. You don't insult your guests by sending to the grocer for champagne at six shillings a bottle. I could not help thinking of Jackson Frere at three and six. In fact, said Mr. Huttle, a man is little less than a murderer who does. That is the province of the milksop who wastes his evening at home playing dominoes with his wife. I've heard of these people. We don't want them at this table. Our party is well selected. We've no use for deaf old women who cannot follow intellectual conversation. All our eyes were turned to Mrs. Field, who, fortunately, being deaf, did not hear his remarks, but continued smiling approval. We have no representative at Mr. Franching's table, said Mr. Huttle, of the unenlightened, frivolous matron who goes to a second-class dance at Bayswater and fancies she is in society. Society does not know her. It has no use for her. Mr. Huttle paused for a moment, and the opportunity was afforded for the ladies to rise. I asked Mr. Franching quietly to excuse me, 
as I did not wish to miss the last train, which we very nearly did, by the by, through Carrie having mislaid the little cloth cricket cap which she wears when we go out. It was very late when Carrie and I got home, but on entering the sitting-room I said, Carrie, what do you think of Mr. Hardfur Huttle? She simply answered, How like Lupin! The same idea occurred to me in the train. The comparison kept me awake half the night. Mr. Huttle was, of course, an older and more influential man, but he was like Lupin, and it made me think how dangerous Lupin would be if he were older and more influential. I feel proud to think Lupin does resemble Mr. Huttle in some ways. Lupin, like Mr. Huttle, has original and sometimes wonderful ideas. But it is those ideas that are so dangerous. They make men extremely rich or extremely poor. They make or break men. I always feel people are happier who live a simple, unsophisticated life. I believe I am happy because I am not ambitious. Somehow I feel that Lupin, since he has been with Mr. Perkup, has become content to settle down and follow the footsteps of his father. This is a comfort. End of chapter. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 21. Lupin is discharged. We are in great trouble. Lupin gets engaged elsewhere at a handsome salary. May the 13th. A terrible misfortune has happened. Lupin is discharged from Mr. Perkup's office, and I scarcely know how I am writing my diary. I was away from the office last sat, the first time I have been absent through illness for twenty years. I believe I was poisoned by some lobster. Mr. Perkup was also absent, as fate would have it, and our most valued customer, Mr. Crobelon, went to the office in a rage and withdrew his custom. My boy Lupin not only had the assurance to receive him, but recommended him the firm of Gilterson Sons & Co. Limited. In my own humble judgment, and though I have to say it against my own son, this seems an act of treachery. This morning I received a letter from Perkup informing me that Lupin's services are no longer required, and an interview with me is desired at eleven o'clock. I went down to the office with an aching heart, dreading an interview with Mr. Perkup, with whom I have never had a word. I saw nothing of Lupin in the morning. He had not got up when it was time for me to leave, and Carrie said I should do no good by disturbing him. My mind wandered so at the office that I could not do my work properly. As I expected, I was sent for by Mr. Perkup, and the following conversation ensued as nearly as I can remember it. Mr. Perkup said, "'Good morning, Mr. Pooter. This is a very serious business.' I am not referring so much to the dismissal of your son, for I knew we should have to part sooner or later. I am the head of this old, influential, and much-respected firm, and when I consider the time has come to revolutionise the business, I will do it myself. I could see my good master was somewhat affected, and I said, I hope so, sir, you do not imagine that I have in any way countenanced my son's unwarrantable interference. Mr. Perkup rose from his seat and took my hand, and said, Mr. Pooter, I would as soon suspect myself as suspect you. I was so agitated that, in the confusion, to show my gratitude, I very nearly called him a grand old man. 
Fortunately, I checked myself in time, and said he was a grand old master. I was so unaccountable for my actions that I sat down, leaving him standing. Of course, I at once rose, but Mr. Perkup bade me sit down, which I was very pleased to do. Mr. Perkup, resuming, said, You will understand, Mr. Pooter, that the high-standing nature of our firm will not admit of our bending to anybody. If Mr. Crobelon chooses to put his work in other hands, I may add less experienced hands, it is not for us to bend and beg back his custom. You shall not do it, sir, I said with indignation. Exactly, replied Mr. Perkup, I shall not do it. But I was thinking this, Mr. Pooter, Mr. Crobelon is our most valued client, and I will even confess, for I know this will not go beyond ourselves, that we cannot afford very well to lose him, especially in these times which are not of the brightest. Now, I fancy you can be of service. I replied, Mr. Perkup, I will work day and night to serve you. Mr. Perkup said, I know you will. Now, what I should like you to do is this. You yourself might write to Mr. Crobelon. You must not, of course, lead him to suppose I know anything about your doing so, and explain to him that your son was only taken on as a clerk, quite an inexperienced one, in fact, out of the respect the firm had for you, Mr. Booter. This is, of course, a fact. I don't suggest you should speak in too strong terms of your own son's conduct, but I may add that, had he been a son of mine, I should have condemned his interference with no measured terms. That I leave to you. I think the result will be that Mr. Crobelon will see the force of the foolish step he has taken, and our firm will neither suffer in dignity nor in pocket. I could not help thinking what a noble gentleman Mr. Perkup is. His manners and his way of speaking seem to almost thrill one with respect. I said, would you like to see the letter before I send it? Mr. Perkup said, Oh, no, I'd better not. I'm supposed to know nothing about it, and I have every confidence in you. You must write the letter carefully. We're not very busy. You'd better take the morning tomorrow, or the whole day, if you like. I shall be here myself all day tomorrow, in fact, all of the week, in case Mr. Crobelon should call. I went home a little more cheerful, but I left word with Sarah that I could not see either Gowing or Cummings, nor, in fact, anybody, if they called in the evening. Lupin came into the parlour for a moment with a new hat on, and asked my opinion of it. I said I was not in the mood to judge of hats, and I did not think he was in a position to buy a new one. Lupin replied carelessly, I didn't buy it, it was a present. I have such terrible suspicions of Lupin now, that I scarcely like to ask him questions, as I dread the answers so. However, he saved me the trouble. He said, I met a friend, an old friend, that I did not quite think a friend at the time, but it's all right, as he wisely said, all is fair in love and war, and there was no reason why we should not be friends still. He's a jolly, good, all-round sort of fellow, and very different stamp from that inflated fool of a Perkamp. I said, Hush, Lupin, do not pray add insult to injury. Lupin said, What do you mean by injury? I repeat, I have done no injury. Crobelon is simply tired of a stagnant stick-in-the-mud firm, and made the change of his own account. I simply recommended the new firm as a matter of biz, good old biz. I said quietly, I don't understand your slang, and at my time of life have no desire to learn it. So, Lupin, my boy, let us change the subject. I will, if it please you, try and be interested in your new hat adventure. 
Lupin said, Oh, there's nothing much about it, except I have not once seen him since his marriage, and he said he was very pleased to see me, and hoped we should be friends. I stood a drink to cement the friendship, and he stood me a new hat, one of his own. I said, rather wearily, But you have not told me your old friend's name. Lupin said, with affected carelessness, Oh, didn't I? Well, I will. It was Murray Posh. Lupin came down late, and, seeing me at home all the morning, asked the reason of it. Carrie and I both agreed it was better to say nothing to him about the letter I was writing, so I evaded the question. Lupin went out, saying he was going to lunch with Murray Posh in the city. I said I hoped Mr. Posh would provide him with a berth. Lupin went out laughing, saying, I don't mind wearing Posh's one-priced hats, but I'm not going to sell them. Poor boy, I fear he is perfectly hopeless. It took me nearly the whole day to write to Mr. Crobelon. Once or twice I asked Carrie for suggestions, and, although it seems ungrateful, her suggestions were none of them to the point, while one or two were absolutely idiotic. Of course I did not tell her so. I got the letter off and took it down to the office for Mr. Perkup to see, but he again repeated that he could trust me. Gowing called in the evening and I was obliged to tell him about Lupin and Mr. Perkup, and, to my surprise, he was quite inclined to side with Lupin. Carrie joined in and said she thought I was taking much too melancholy a view of it. Gowing produced a pint sample bottle of Madeira, which had been given to him, which he said would get rid of the blues. I dare say it would have done so if there had been more of it, but as Gowing helped himself to three glasses, it did not leave much for Carrie and me to get rid of the blues with. May the 15th, a day of great anxiety, for I expected every moment a letter from Mr. Crobelon. Two letters came in the evening, one for me, with Crobelon Hall, printed in large gold and red letters on the back of the envelope, the other for Lupin, which I felt inclined to open and read, as it had Gilterson Sons and Co. Limited, which was the recommended firm. I trembled as I opened Mr. Crobelon's letter. I wrote him sixteen pages, closely written. He wrote me less than sixteen lines. His letter was, Sir, I totally disagree with you. Your son, in the course of five minutes' conversation, displayed more intelligence than your firm has done during the last five years. Yours faithfully, Gilbert E. Gillam O. Crobelon. What am I to do? Here is a letter that I dare not show to Mr. Perkup, and would not show to Lupin for anything. The crisis had yet to come, for Lupin arrived, and opening his letter, showed a cheque for twenty-five pounds as a commission for the recommendation of Mr. Crobelon, whose custom to Mr. Perkup is evidently lost for ever. Cummings and Gowing both called, and both took Lupin's part. Cummings went so far as to say that Lupin would make a name yet. I suppose I was melancholy, for I could only ask, yes, but what sort of a name? May the 16th. I told Mr. Perkup the contents of the letter in a modified firm, but Mr. Perkup said, Pray don't discuss the matter. It is at an end. Your son will bring his punishment upon himself. I went home in the evening thinking of the hopeless future of Lupin. I found him in the most extravagant spirits and in evening dress. He threw a letter on the table for me to read. To my amazement I read that Gilterson and Sons had absolutely engaged Lupin at a salary of two hundred pounds a year with other advantages. I read the letter through three times, and thought it must have been for me, but there it was, 
Lupin Pooter, plain enough. I was silent. Lupin said, What price perk up now? You take my tip, Gov. Off with Perkup, and freeze on to Gilderson, the firm of the future. Perkup's firm, the stagnant dummies, have been standing still for years, and now are moving back. I want to go on. In fact, I must go off, as I am dining with the Murray Poshes tonight. In the exuberance of his spirits, he hit his hat with a stick, and gave a loud war-whoop, jumped over a chair, and took the liberty of rumpling my hair all over my forehead, and bounced out of the room, giving me no chance of reminding him of his age and the respect which was due to his parent. Gowing and Cummings came in the evening, and positively cheered me up with congratulations respecting Lupin. Gowing said, I always said he would get on, and take my word, he has more in his head than we three put together. Carrie said, he's a second hard for Huttle. End of chapter. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 22 Master Percy Edgar Smith James Mrs. James of Sutton visits us again and introduces spiritual seances. May the 26th, Sunday we went to Sutton after dinner to have meat tea with Mr. and Mrs. James. I had no appetite, having dined well at two, and the entire evening was spoilt by little Percy, their only son, who seems to me to be an utterly spoiled child. Two or three times he came up to me and deliberately kicked my shins. He hurt me once so much that the tears came into my eyes. I gently remonstrated with him, and Mrs. James said, "'Please don't scold him. I do not believe in being too severe with young children. You spoil their character.' Little Percy set up a deafening yell here, and when Carrie tried to pacify him, he slapped her face. I was so annoyed, I said, "'This is not my idea of bringing up children, Mrs. James.' Mrs. James said, "'People have different ideas of bringing up children.' Even your son Lupin is not the standard of perfection. A Mr. Mezzini, an Italian, I fancy, here took Percy in his lap. The child wriggled and kicked and broke away from Mr. Mezzini, saying, I don't like you, you've got a dirty face. A very nice gentleman, Mr. Burke's spooner, took the child by the wrist and said, Come here, dear, and listen to this. He detached his chronometer from the chain and made his watch strike six. To our horror, the child snatched it from his hand and bounced it down upon the ground like one would a ball. Mr. Burke Spooner was most amiable, and said he could easily get a new glass put in and did not suppose the works were damaged. To show you how people's opinions differ, Carrie said the child was bad-tempered, but it made up for that defect by its looks, for it was, in her mind, an unquestionably beautiful child. I may be wrong, but I do not think I have seen a much uglier child myself. That is my opinion. May the 30th. I don't know why it is, but I never anticipate with any pleasure the visits to our house of Mrs. James of Sutton. She is coming again to stay for a few days. I said to Carrie this morning, as I was leaving, 
I wish, dear Carrie, I could like Mrs. James better than I do. Carrie said, So do I, dear. But as for years I've had to put up with Mr. Gowing, who is vulgar, and Mr. Cummings, who is kind but most uninteresting, I am sure, dear, you won't mind the occasional visits of Mrs. James, who has more intellect in her little finger than both your friends have in their entire bodies. I was so entirely taken aback by this onslaught on my two dear old friends I could say nothing, and as I heard the bus coming I left with a hurried kiss. A little too hurried, perhaps, for my upper lip came in contact with Carrie's teeth and slightly cut it. It was quite painful for an hour afterwards. When I came home in the evening I found Carrie buried in a book on spiritualism, called There Is No Birth, by Florence Singalite. I need scarcely say the book was sent her to read by Mrs. James of Sutton. As she had not a word to say outside her book, I spent the rest of the evening altering the stair-carpets, which are beginning to show signs of wear at the edges. Mrs. James arrived and, as usual, in the evening took the entire management of everything. Finding that she and Carrie were making some preparations for table-turning, I thought it time really to put my foot down. I have always had the greatest contempt for such nonsense, and put an end to it years ago when Carrie at our old house used to have seances every night with poor Mrs. Fusters, who is now dead. If I could see any use in it, I would not care. As I stopped it in the days gone by, I determined to do so now. I said, I am very sorry, Mrs. James, but I totally disapprove of it, apart from the fact that I receive my old friends on this evening. Mrs. James said, Do you mean to say you haven't read There Is No Birth? I said, No, and I have no intention of doing so. Mrs. James seemed surprised, and said, All the world is going mad over the book. I responded, rather cleverly, Let it. There will be one sane man in it at all events. Mrs. James said she thought I was very unkind, and if people were all as prejudiced as I was, there would never have been the electric telegraph or the telephone. I said that was quite a different thing. Mrs. James said sharply, In what way, pray, in what way? I said, in many ways. Mrs. James said, well, mention one way. I replied quietly, pardon me, Mrs. James, I decline to discuss the matter. I am not interested in it. Sarah, at this moment, opened the door and showed in Cummings, for which I was thankful, for I felt it would put a stop to this foolish table-turning. But I was entirely mistaken, for, on the subject being opened again, Cummings said he was most interested in spiritualism, although he was bound to confess he did not believe much in it. Still, he was willing to be convinced. I firmly declined to take any part in it, with the result that my presence was ignored. I left the three sitting in the parlour at a small round table, which they had taken out of the drawing-room. I walked into the hall with the ultimate intention of taking a little stroll. As I opened the door, who should come in but Gowing? On hearing what was going on, he proposed that we should join the circle, and he would go into a trance. He added that he knew a few things about old Cummings, and would invent a few about Mrs. James. Knowing how dangerous Gowing is, I declined to let him take part in any such foolish performance. Sarah asked me if she could go out for half an hour, 
and I gave her permission, thinking it would be more comfortable to sit with Gowing in the kitchen than in the cold drawing-room. We talked a good deal about Lupin and Mr. and Mrs. Murray Posh, with whom he is, as usual, spending the evening. Gowing said, I say, it wouldn't be a bad thing for Lupin if old Posh kicked the bucket. My heart gave a leap of horror, and I rebuked Gowing very sternly for joking on such a subject. I lay awake half the night thinking of it. The other half was spent in nightmares on the same subject. May the 31st. I wrote a stern letter to the laundress. I was rather pleased with the letter, for I thought it very satirical. I said, You have returned the handkerchiefs without the colour. Perhaps you will return either the colour or the value of the handkerchiefs. I shall be rather curious to know what she will have to say. More table-turning in the evening. Carrie said last night was, in a measure, successful, and they ought to sit again. Cummings came in and seemed interested. I had the gas lighted in the drawing-room, got the steps, and repaired the cornice, which has been a bit of an eyesore to me. In a fit of unthinkingness, if I may use such an expression, I gave the floor over the parlour where the seance was taking place two loud raps with the hammer. I felt sorry afterwards, for it was a sort of ridiculous, foolhardy thing that Gowing or Lupin would have done. However, they never even referred to it, but Carrie declared that a message came through the table to her of a wonderful description, concerning someone whom she and I knew years ago, and who was quite unknown to the others. When we went to bed, Carrie asked me as a favour to sit to-morrow night to oblige her. She said it seemed rather unkind and unsociable on my part. I promised I would sit once. June the 1st. I sat reluctantly at the table in the evening, and I am bound to admit some curious things happened. I contend they were coincidences, but they were curious. For instance, the table kept tilting towards me, which Carrie construed as a desire that I should ask the spirit a question. I obeyed the rules, and I asked the spirit, who said her name was Lena, if she could tell me the name of an old aunt of whom I was thinking, and whom we used to call Aunt Maggie. The table spelt out C-A-T. We could make nothing of it, till I suddenly remembered that her second name was Catherine, which it was evidently trying to spell. I don't think even Carrie knew this, but if she did she would never cheat. I must admit it was curious. Several other things happened, and I consented to sit at another séance on Monday. June the 3rd. The laundress called and said she was very sorry about the handkerchiefs, and returned ninepence. I said, as the colour was completely washed out, and the handkerchiefs quite spoiled, ninepence was not enough. Carrie replied that the two handkerchiefs originally only cost sixpence, for she remembered buying them at a sale at the Holloway Bon Marché. In that case, I insisted that threepence should be returned to the laundress. Lupin has gone to stay with the Poshes for a few days. I must say I feel very uncomfortable about it. Carrie said I was ridiculous to worry about it. Mr. Posh was very fond of Lupin, who, after all, was only a mere boy. In the evening we had another séance, which, in some respects, was very remarkable, although the first part of it was a little doubtful. Gowing called, as well as Cummings, and begged to be allowed to join the circle. 
I wanted to object, but Mrs. James, who appears a good medium, that is, if there is anything in it at all, thought there might be a little more spirit power if Gowing joined. So the five of us sat down. The moment I turned out the gas, and almost before I could get my hands on the table, it rocked violently and tilted, and began moving quickly across the room. Gowing shouted out, "'Way, oh, steady, lad, steady!' I told Gowing if he could not behave himself, I should light the gas, and put an end to the seance. To tell the truth, I thought Gowing was playing tricks, and I hinted as much. But Mrs. James said she had often seen the table go right off the ground. The spirit Lena came again and said, Warn, three or four times, and declined to explain. Mrs. James said Lena was stubborn sometimes. She often behaved like that, and the best thing to do was to send her away. She then hit the table sharply and said, Go away, Lena, you are disagreeable, go away. I should think we sat nearly three-quarters of an hour with nothing happening. My hands felt quite cold, and I suggested we should stop the seance. Carrie and Mrs. James, as well as Cummings, would not agree to it. It was about ten minutes' time there was something tilting towards me. I gave the alphabet, and it spelled out S-P-O-O-F. As I have heard both Gowing and Lupin use the word, and as I could hear Gowing silently laughing, I directly accused him of pushing the table. He denied it, but I regret to say I did not believe him. Gowing said, perhaps it means spook or ghost. I said, you know it doesn't mean anything of the sort. Gowing said, oh, very well, I'm sorry I spook, and he rose from the table. No one took any notice of the stupid joke, and Mrs. James suggested he should sit out for a while. Gowing consented and sat in the armchair. The table began to move again, and we might have had a wonderful seance, but for Gowing's stupid interruptions. In answer to the alphabet from Carrie, the table spelt N-I-P-U-L, then the W-A-R-N three times. We could not think what it meant till Cummings pointed out that N-I-P-U-L was Lupin spelled backwards. This was quite exciting. Carrie was particularly excited, and said she hoped nothing horrible was going to happen. Mrs. James asked if Lena was the spirit, and the table replied firmly, No, and the spirit would not give his or her name. We then had the message, N-I-P-U-L will be very rich. Carrie said she felt quite relieved, but the word WARN was again spelled out. The table then began to oscillate violently, and in reply to Mrs. James, who spoke very softly to the table, the spirit began to spell its name. It first spelled D-R-I-N-K. Gowing here said, ah, that's more in my line. I asked him to be quiet, as the name might not be completed. The table then spelt W-A-T-E-R. Gowing here interrupted again and said, Ah, that's not in my line. Outside, if you like, but not inside. Carrie appealed to him to be quiet. The table then spelled Captain, and Mrs. James startled us by crying out, Captain Drinkwater, a very old friend of my father's, who has been dead some years. This was more interesting, and I could not help thinking that, after all, there must be something in spiritualism. Mrs. James asked the spirit to interpret the meaning of the word WARN as applied to N-I-P-U-L. 
The alphabet was given again, and we got the word B-O-S-H. Gowing here muttered, So it is. Mrs. James said she did not think the spirit meant that, as Captain Drinkwater was a perfect gentleman, and would never have used the word in answer to a lady's question. Accordingly, the alphabet was given again. This time the table spelled distinctly P-O-S-H. We all thought of Mrs. Murray Posh and Lupin. Carrie was getting a little distressed, and as it was getting late, we broke up the circle. We arranged to have one more tomorrow, as it will be Mrs. James' last night in town. We also determined not to have Gowing present. Cummings, before leaving, said it was certainly interesting, but he wished the spirits would say something about him. June the 4th. Quite looking forward to the seance this evening, was thinking of it all day at the office. Just as we sat down at the table, we were annoyed by Gowing entering without knocking. He said, I'm not going to stop, but I have brought with me a sealed envelope, which I know I can trust with Mrs. Pooter. In that sealed envelope is a strip of paper on which I have asked a simple question. If the spirits can answer that question, I will believe in spiritualism. I ventured the expression that it might be impossible. Mrs. James said, Oh, no, it is of common occurrence for the spirits to answer questions under such conditions, and even for them to write on locked slates. It is quite worth trying. If Lena is in a good temper, she is certain to do it. Gowing said, All right, then I shall be a firm believer. I shall perhaps drop in about half-past nine or ten and hear the result. He then left, and we sat a long time. Cummings wanted to know something about some undertaking in which he was concerned, but he could get no answer of any description whatever, at which he said he was very disappointed and was afraid there was not much in table-turning after all. I thought this rather selfish of him. The seance was very similar to the one last night, almost the same, in fact. So we turned to the letter. Lena took a long time answering the question, but eventually spelt out roses, lilies, and cows. There was a great rocking of the table at this time, and Mrs. James said, If that is Captain Drinkwater, let us ask him the answer as well. It was the spirit of the captain, and, most singular, he gave the same identical answer, roses, lilies, and cows. I cannot describe the agitation with which Carrie broke the seal, or the disappointment we felt on reading the question, to which the answer was so inappropriate. The question was, What's old Pooter's age? This quite decided me. As I had put my foot down on spiritualism years ago, so I would again. I'm pretty easy-going as a rule, but I can be extremely firm when driven to it. I said slowly, as I turned up the gas, This is the last of this nonsense that shall ever take place under my roof. I regret I permitted myself to be a party to such tomfoolery, if there is anything in it, which I doubt, it is nothing of any good, and I won't have it again. That is enough. Mrs. James said, I think, Mr. Pooter, you are rather overstepping. I said, Hush, madam, I am master of this house. Please understand that. Mrs. James made an observation which I sincerely hope I was mistaken in. I was in such a rage I could not quite catch what she said. But if I thought she said what it sounded like, she should never enter the house again. End of chapter
The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 23 Lupin leaves us. We dine at his new apartments and hear some extraordinary information respecting the wealth of Mr. Murray Posh. Meet Miss Lillian Posh. Am sent for by Mr. Hardford Little. Important. July the 1st. I find, on looking over my diary, nothing of any consequence has taken place during the last month. Today we lose Lupin, who has taken furnished apartments at Bayswater, near his friends Mr. and Mrs. Murray Posh, at two guineas a week. I think this is most extravagant of him, as it is half his salary. Lupin says one never loses by a good address, and, to use his own expression, Brickfield Terrace is a bit off. Whether he means it is far off, I do not know. I have long since given up trying to understand his curious expressions. I said the neighbourhood had always been good enough for his parents. His reply was, It is no question of being good or bad. There is no money in it, and I am not going to rot away my life in the suburbs. We are sorry to lose him, but perhaps he will get on better by himself and there may be some truth in his remark that an old and a young horse can't pull together in the same cart. Gowing called and said that the house seemed quite peaceful and like old times. He liked Master Lupin very well, but he occasionally suffered from what he could not help—youth. July the 2nd, Cummings called, looked very pale, and said he had been very ill again, and, of course, not a single friend had been near him. Carrie said she had never heard of it, whereupon he threw down a copy of the Bicycle News on the table with the following paragraph. We regret to hear that favourite old roadster Mr. Cummings, Long Cummings, has met with what might have been a serious accident in Rye Lane. A mischievous boy threw a stick between the spokes of one of the back wheels, and the machine overturned, bringing our brother tricyclist heaving to the ground. Fortunately, he was more frightened than hurt, but we missed his merry face at the dinner at Chingford, where they turned up in good numbers. Long Cummings' health was proposed by our popular vice, Mr. Westrop, the prince of bicyclists, who, in his happiest vein, said it was a case of Cummings through the rye. But fortunately there was more weal than woe, a joke which created roars of laughter. We all said we were very sorry, and pressed Cummings to stay to supper. Cummings said it was like old times being without Lupin, and he was much better away. July the 3rd, Sunday In the afternoon, as I was looking out of the parlour window, which was open, a grand trap, driven by a lady with a gentleman seated by the side of her, stopped at our door. Not wishing to be seen, I withdrew my head very quickly, knocking the back of it violently against the sharp edge of the window-sash. I was nearly stunned. There was a loud double knock at the front door. Carrie rushed out of the parlour upstairs to her room, and I followed, as Carrie thought it was Mr. Perkup. I thought it was Mr. Franching. I whispered to Sarah over the banisters, show them into the drawing-room. Sarah said, as the shutters were not open, the room would smell musty. There was another loud rat-tat. I whispered then, show them into the parlour, and say, Mr. Pooter will be down directly. I changed my coat, but could not see to do my hair, as Carrie was occupying the glass. Sarah came up, and said it was Mrs. Murray Posh and Mr. Lupin. 
This was quite a relief. I went down with Carrie, and Lupin met me with the remark, "'I say, what did you run away from the window for? Did we frighten you?' I foolishly said, "'What window?' Lupin said, "'Oh, you know. Shut it. You looked as if you were playing at Punch and Judy.' On Carrie asking if she could offer them anything, Lupin said, "'Oh, I think Daisy will take on a cup of tea. I can do with a B and S.' I said, "'I'm afraid we have no soda.' Lupin said, "'Don't bother about that. You just trip out and hold the horse. I don't think Sarah understands it.' They stayed a very short time, and as they were leaving, Lupin said, "'I want you both to come and dine with me next Wednesday and see my new place. Mr. and Mrs. Murray Posh, Miss Posh, Murray's sister, are coming. Eight o'clock sharp, no one else?' I said we did not pretend to be fashionable people, and would like the dinner earlier, as it made it so late before we got home.' Lupin said, "'Rats! You must get used to it. If it comes to that, Daisy and I can drive you home.' We promised to go, but I must say in my simple mind the familiar way in which Mrs. Posh and Lupin addressed each other is reprehensible. Anybody would think they had been children together. I certainly should object to a six-month's acquaintance calling my wife Carrie and driving out with her. July the 4th Lupin's rooms looked very nice, but the dinner was, I thought, a little too grand, especially as he commenced with champagne straight off. I also think Lupin might have told us that he and Mr. and Mrs. Murray Posh and Miss Posh were going to put on full evening dress. Knowing that the dinner was only for six, we never dreamed it would be a full-dress affair. I had no appetite. It was quite twenty minutes past eight before we sat down to dinner. At six I could have eaten a hearty meal. I had a bit of bread and butter at that hour, feeling famished, and I expect that partly spoiled my appetite. We were introduced to Miss Posh, whom Lupin called Lily Girl, as if he had known her all his life. She was very tall, rather plain, and I thought she was a little painted around the eyes. I hope I am wrong, but she had such fair hair, and yet her eyebrows were black. She looked about thirty. I did not like the way she kept giggling and giving Lupin smacks and pinching him. Then her laugh was a sort of scream that went right through my ears, all the more irritating because there was nothing to laugh at. In fact, Carrie and I were not at all prepossessed with her. They all smoked cigarettes after dinner, including Miss Posh, who startled Carrie by saying, "'Don't you smoke, dear?' I answered for Carrie and said, "'Mrs. Charles Pooter has not arrived at it yet.' Whereupon Miss Posh gave one of her piercing laughs again. Mrs. Posh sang a dozen songs at least, and I can only repeat what I have said before, she does not sing in tune. But Lupin sat by the side of the piano, gazing into her eyes the whole time. If I had been Mr. Posh, I think I should have had something to say about it. Mr. Posh made himself very agreeable to us, and eventually sent us home in his carriage, which I thought most kind. He is evidently very rich, for Mrs. Posh had on some beautiful jewellery. She told Carrie her necklace, which her husband gave her as a birthday present, alone cost three hundred pounds. Mr. Bosch said he had a great belief in Lupin, and thought he would make rapid way in the world. I could not help thinking of the six hundred pounds Mr. Posh lost over the Parachica chlorides through Lupin's advice. During the evening I had an opportunity to speak to Lupin, and expressed a hope that Mr. Posh was not living beyond his means. Lupin sneered, and said Mr. Posh was worth thousands. Posh's one-price hat was a household word in Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, and all the big towns throughout England. 
Lupin further informed me that Mr. Posh was opening branch establishments at New York, Sydney and Melbourne, and was negotiating for Kimberley and Johannesburg. I said I was pleased to hear it. Lupin said, why he has settled over ten thousand pounds on Daisy, and the same amount on Lily Girl. If at any time I wanted a little capital, he would put up a couple of thou at a day's notice, and could buy up Perkins' firm over his head at any moment with ready cash. On the way home in the carriage, for the first time in my life, I was inclined to indulge in the radical thought that money was not properly divided. On arriving home at quarter past eleven, we found a handsome cab which had been waiting for me for two hours with a letter. Sarah said she did not know what to do, as we had not left the address where we had gone. I trembled as I opened the letter, fearing it was some bad news about Mr. Perkup. The note was, Dear Mr. Pooter, come down to the Victoria Hotel without delay, important. Yours truly, Hardfur Huttle. I asked the cabman if it was too late. The cabman replied that it was not, for his instructions were, if I happened to be out, he was to wait till I came home. I felt very tired, and really wanted to go to bed. I reached the hotel at quarter before midnight. I apologised for being so late, but Mr. Huttle said, Not at all. Come and have a few oysters. I feel my heart beating as I write these words. To be brief, Mr. Huttle said he had a rich American friend who wanted to do something large in our line of business, and that Mr. Franching had mentioned my name to him. We talked over the matter. If, by any happy chance, the result be successful, I can more than compensate my dear master for the loss of Mr. Crowbillon's custom. Mr. Huttle had previously said, The glorious fourth is a lucky day for America, and as it has not yet struck twelve, we will celebrate it with a glass of the best wine to be had in the place, and drink good luck to our bit of business. I fervently hope it will bring good luck to us all. It was two o'clock when I got home. Although I was so tired I could not sleep except for short intervals, then only to dream. I kept dreaming of Mr. Perkup and Mr. Huttle. The latter was in a lovely palace with a crown on. Mr. Perkup was waiting in the room. Mr. Huttle kept taking off his crown and handing it to me, and calling me President. He appeared to take no notice of Mr. Perkup, and I kept asking Mr. Huttle to give the crown to my worthy master. Mr. Huttle kept saying, No, this is the White House of Washington, and you must keep your crown, Mr. President. We all laughed long and very loudly, till I got parched, and then I woke up. I fell asleep, only to dream the same thing over again. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter The Last One of the Happiest Days of My Life July the 10th. The excitement and anxiety through which I have gone the last few days have been almost enough to turn my hair grey. It is all but settled. Tomorrow the die will be cast. I have written a long letter to Lupin, feeling it my duty to do so, regarding his attention to Mrs. Posh, for they drove up to our house again last night. July the 11th. I find my eyes filling with tears as I pen the note of my interview this morning with Mr. Perkup. Addressing me, he said, My faithful servant, 
I will not dwell on the important service you have done our firm. You can never be sufficiently thanked. Let us change the subject. Do you like your house, and are you happy where you are? I replied, Yes, sir, I love my house, and I love the neighbourhood, and could not bear to leave it. Mr. Perkup, to my surprise, said, Mr. Pooter, I will purchase the freehold of that house, and present it to the most honest and most worthy man it has ever been my lot to meet. He shook my hand, and said he hoped my wife and I would be spared many years to enjoy it. My heart was too full to thank him, and, seeing my embarrassment, the good fellow said, You need say nothing, Mr. Pooter, and left the office. I sent telegrams to Carrie, Gowing, and Cummings, a thing I have never done before, and asked the two latter to come round to supper. On arriving home I found Carrie crying with joy, and I sent Sarah round to the grocer's to get two bottles of Jackson Frere. My two dear friends came in the evening, and the last post brought a letter from Lupin in reply to mine. I read it aloud to them all. It ran, My dear old Gov, keep your hair on. You are on the wrong track again. I am engaged to be married to Lily Girl. I did not mention it last Thursday, as it was not definitely settled. We shall be married in August, and amongst our guests we hope to see your old friends Gowing and Cummings. With much love to all, from the same old Lupin. The End End of Recording